This is episode 187 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Teaching with Doug McKee. This is our second episode in our series about education and teaching. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I have another treat for you today. I'm so thrilled to welcome a new guest to the show. Doug McKee is with us. Hi, Doug. Welcome to the show. How are you, Jeff? Good to see you again, I guess. Yeah, okay. see with the inverted quote marks since you can't quite right. see me yet. I was more thinking like it's nice when we see each other in person. Oh, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Those long so, ago days when we saw My it. gosh, it does <laughs> seem like so long ago. It does. All right, Doug, I want to introduce you. Doug McKee got his undergrad in computer science from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute after working as a software developer for 10 years, which is actually where I met him. Doug read some books on economics and decided he wanted to learn more. He ended up getting a PhD in econ from UCLA and found himself in academia, splitting his time between economics research and teaching. The teaching was far more fulfilling. And Doug has defined himself as a teacher ever since. He lectured at Yale for a number of years and now teaches at Cornell University back in New York. And recently, he's come back to splitting his time between research and teaching with a big difference. Now his research focuses on learning how students learn and how we can best teach them. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I think teaching is such an interesting occupation. So thanks so much for taking the time today to, to talk to us. Oh, you're so welcome, Jeff. I can talk about teaching to just about anybody for as long as they have. So we don't name teaching as the oldest profession, but it's got to be up there. There's something really moving and human about someone teaching someone else how to do something, whether it's a teacher to a student or a parent to a child or a master to an apprentice, or even a young person to an old person. And what got you interested in exploring what goes into teaching? That's a great question. And I actually, I get that from my students a fair amount. Um, it's the second question they ask me. First, they say, how did you become an economist? But then the next is like, why are you, why do you care so much about teaching? Mm-hmm. And I think the, the short kind of cheap answer is, I wasn't that interested in teaching until I actually did it. And then when I did it, I just found it incredibly rewarding. Mm -hmm. And I found myself in the shower instead of thinking, how can I better estimate this particular parameter and this model I'm working through? (laughs) uh, That does not happen to me. (laughs) No, I mean, now it's funny, actually. Now it does, now it for sure does happen again. Mm. But it was much more about boy, my class didn't go very well yesterday. How can I make it better? Mm. And thinking, how can I 
frame this so they can they really care about it? Uh, what kind of assignment can I give them that'll actually give them the practice that they need to really master this idea? And that kind of problem is super interesting. I mean, it's I mean, teaching a good class is so complicated. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll I'll say the class I just taught today it was highly choreographed because it just has so many moving parts. Like I'll give a little lecture here, tell a little story there, ask them to work through something individually, have them work in small groups. And there's so many different things to, so many levers to pull when you're, when you're teaching a class. And then at the same time, like the, you've got a whole bunch of students and every student is different. And in many ways, every student needs, needs something different. Uh, to really thrive. And then finally, like it's a, it's an interesting, hard problem, but it's also incredibly rewarding and important. In an ideal world, you're teaching someone how to look at the world in a whole new way. When I put my economist hat on, I mean, I'm improving the productivity of the workforce. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then and then I guess the last thing is there's so much low-hanging fruit. When you, when you look at the, the college level, and, and I think probably a lot of K-12 education, the same teaching methods are being used that were used 800 years ago before the printing press, where this person would stand up and they would talk and the students would listen and take notes. And we can do so much better than that. Like there are so many more productive and more enjoyable ways to teach and a variety of kinds of people. And, and part of the problem, of course, is the people that are teaching, at least at the college level, are the ones who thrived under the old way of doing things or the classic way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And so they, they have this blind spot for all the people, all the students that don't learn very well that way. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm already darting off on a tar- tangent here. Oh, I love tangents. I mean, for me, I, you know, I do some teaching one-on-one, so there's so many things that are less complicated for me. I don't have to worry about class dynamics and, you know, people dominating the discussion and so many things. But I do find that it's really hard for me to narrow my focus. So I have a tendency to spend even, one. Well, this probably is true for you too, but, you know, so much time preparing because there are so many options available to me. And then if I'm really trying to customize my material for that particular student, you really do have to customize it. I mean, it really is gonna take a long time to prepare something for one individual. So I think that I haven't quite conquered that part of it where I'm not spending so much time preparing and then it's like, okay, your lesson's over. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, over prep, that's like such a rookie mistake. Mm, I see. <laughs> like, I always hear about, like, it's so classic that for a first time professor to prepare twice as much for a lecture that they actually have time to, to teach. And then the really sad thing is, like, so they, they only use half their material, but then the students only got like a quarter of what they were teaching. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times, what you need to do is then pare it down even more. And so you just have to prioritize, like, what are the key things I want my students to learn from this lecture or this lesson? And make sure that by the end of the year chunk of time that you've kind of presented the ideas, you've interrogated them enough to get a feel for whether they've actually learned them. You've given them a chance to kind of practice with them and kind of get get their hands around them before you move on to the next thing, rather than just like, deluge them with ideas and hope that some of them stick. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Yeah, I think assessment is such a key. And, you know, we're starting this series here on education and teaching. So we're going to be spending quite a bit of time talking about school quality. You're only the uh, second episode in this series, so we're going to delve into that more. But, but I think assessment is really a tricky topic because it's one thing to assess yourself how well you've done at teaching, and it's another thing to have somebody else come through with their criteria and decide whether or not what you've taught is, is appropriate. You know, and, I mean, good and bad on both sides, right? subjectivity isn't always on your side, but. Well, I thought you were going to talk about assessment in the process of teaching. So kind of education folks talk about these two kinds of assessment, formative Mm -hmm. and summative. So formative assessment is what I do every day in class where I say, all right, I just taught this thing. Now let me give you a question that is not so much for me to kind of evaluate the students and assign a grade for the external world, but is I'm assessing specifically so that the students can learn what they what they know and then do something about it. Oh wow. So yeah, another le- level of meta there. Well then and then there's there's kind of summative assessment which is like at the end of the semester I need to like assign grades. And I think I actually I'm not one of these people that are like grades are dumb and I don't think we should even have grades. I disagree. I think I think grades are a really important motivator. I think grades are a really important signal to who comes next, whether it's a graduate school or whether it's an employer, so they can distinguish between like, what do these candidates know and not know? I think summative assessment is really important. But what you said was actually something really different, which is how do we assess teaching quality? That is really hard. (laughs) I mean, it's also something I've thought a lot, like long and hard about. I'm sure. But, and I think there's kind of, there's two real approaches to that. And one is to go in and try to assess whether the the teacher is is using kind of well-regarded and evidence-based methods in their teaching and whether an external quote-unquote expert observer thinks they're doing a good job applying these things because just because you read somewhere that oh if i pull my students and they respond with clickers then that's a good thing it is a good thing but the quality of the questions matters so much more than whether you're actually doing it. Yeah. But then there's this other way to evaluate teaching, which is it's like evaluating physicians. You can go and you can look and watch them and see if they're doing a good job in the surgery. And then you can go and see if the patients survive. Uh-huh, right. If you can do a good job measuring what the students have learned, then in some ways that's, I mean, I'm not going to say it's a perfect measure of teaching quality because it's so hard to assess student learning. Mm-hmm. And there are so many things we want our students to like to learn and ways we want our students to grow that are super hard to measure, but it's for sure important. And we can for sure do a, at least a decent job at measuring student learning. I, I mean, I would say over the last four years, me and my small team of postdocs have invested super heavy in developing uh, standard assessments for the major courses in economics that we can give students at the end of the semester in our departments. The idea is that when we make changes to teaching, whether that's a new person teaching the course or a new way of teaching the course, we can look and say, okay, at the end of the semester, how the students do on this test? Did they do better or did they do worse? And in what particular areas did they do better and worse? Because you can't do anything without data. And so we need the we need data to to assess our teaching. You are in such a perfect position right now to 
to do the work that you're doing. And that, that gosh, that's, it's so inspiring, right? Because we try, at least it's the same in the business world. We try out these new things sometimes without, with a complete loss of the big picture. Like, did this, was this really effective? Did this really work? So I can imagine assessment like that must be so useful to people who are in fact trying to use technology in new ways or all kinds of different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean, the devil's in the details, right? And lots of the faculty, they're convinced that they're doing a great job. Mm-hmm. And that if the test shows that they're not, then clearly it's a problem with the test. Yeah. I mean, there's always that, yeah, that right. push and pull, right? Yeah. Right. I just have to glom on here about grades. Yeah. So, yeah. I didn't even think about that until you were talking. It's funny. My dad was a professor of physics, but he took teaching really seriously and spent a lot of time teaching me and my siblings. And that was, he was a big proponent of grades, partly because, and, and maybe you mentioned this, you know, grades are really useful to the student. I mean, if you do yeah. grades right, I don't know, a grade on a whole course, it's sort of useful, but really important are grades or at least a quantitative assessment of how you've done on a particular test. And when you get into that, there's so many things that are wrong now with what's happening. I get so frustrated with my kids. They never get their tests back. So they never oh. get to see like exactly what questions they missed. And then my they, Lord, feedback is so important. Yeah, so important. Yeah. Well, let's talk about K through 12 here. So you've, yeah. you've mentioned before that teaching quality during the K through 12 grades is often very good because teachers are paid to teach. Whereas at the college level, sometimes teaching is seen as a distraction from research. Wasn't true for my dad and obviously not true for you, but certainly is true for a lot of professors, especially I think the ones that don't like to teach. So what do you think makes a good teacher? Boy, the, um, there are a lot of ways to be a good teacher. Mm. As, a, as a side hobby, I also have a podcast. It's called the Teach Better Podcast. Mm-hmm. We're on a bit of a hiatus, but I but the band hasn't broken up. Together and put out back together. But it's been a while since our last album. But the I, the driving idea behind that podcast was to have conversations with teachers, mostly in higher ed, but across a wide range of disciplines that were passionate about uh, what they did in the classroom and were doing creative things in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And w- one of the main kind of things I learned from that is there are so many ways to be a great teacher. Mm. There are teachers that get up and they give an amazing, pure lecture mm-hmm. and the students are just riveted. Mm-hmm. And you would think that like these teachers, they shouldn't be good teachers because they're not doing all of the kind of the the fancy interactive stuff that, that's on the kind of the cutting edge, but they're still connecting with students and inspiring students. Mm-hmm. Some teachers are all about like doing interesting things in the classroom. Others are all about assigning great projects outside the classroom. But at the same time, I think there's like one core principle behind, behind good teaching and then lots of things that you can kind of cobble together in different combinations and be a great teacher. Like you don't need all of it at all. But the main one is you have to really care about your students. Oh. Okay. Your students are human beings and they have needs and they live their lives. And you need to understand that. And 
and just kind of be there. I'm not saying you've got to be their parent at all, mm-hmm. but you just have to kind of understand them and talk to them and not treat them as these kind of things that show up in your inbox that are super annoying to deal with. Oh, annoying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's big. And I would say a lot of teachers have that, but a lot of teachers don't have that. And if you don't have that, I mean, I'm all about growth mindset. Like I think it can be taught, uh-huh. but if it doesn't come easy, maybe you shouldn't be teaching so much. But beyond that, I think kind of big picture, you want to share new ideas and give students opportunities to work with those ideas. It's not just about kind of sharing the ideas and, and teaching clearly. I've had, I've had a chance to read a huge number of, I've, I've done some hiring and I've had a chance to read a lot of teaching statements. Oh, interesting. And it's shocking how many are, I really love economics and I think it's really important to explain it very clearly. Okay. And that's not enough. Uh It's not nearly enough. There's giving students feedback. We touched on this a little bit earlier. I think it's absolutely critical that students not only have opportunities to work with material, but get feedback. I mean, when you think about coaching, coaching is not, here's your workout, now go do it. It's the coach saying, here's your workout, go do it. And then stopping different players at different points and saying, actually, you're doing this wrong. Mm -hmm. You should be doing this instead. Okay. Or why are you doing this? Okay. So the Socratic method, it works pretty well too. (laughs) I think what you said earlier about just getting tests back, not only is that it's terrible not to give give back the test because you're not giving feedback. It's just a violation of the contract. Like when you get in the classroom with your students, there are things you're committing to doing. You're committing to giving the lectures as well as you can. You're committing to grading assignments and returning them on time. You're committing to kind of grading fairly. And if you don't follow through on that, why are they not going to follow through on any of their commitments for the course? Mm. And then there are a couple of things that I do that I think are are really important that I think are more rare kind of across the, the teaching profession. So one is when I make a choice that's a little unusual in my teaching, I explain why I do it. Here's a here's a, an example for right now. Mm-hmm. The exams that I'm giving in my online classes right now, they're all multiple choice. Okay. And that's because not because I think multiple choice exams are a better measure. Mm-hmm but because it allows me to, to write a large pool of questions and then have every student take a random subset of those questions as their exam. Oh, oh. And then they can't collaborate because I want an individual measure of learning on the exam. I don't, I mean, I love when my students work together. They work together on problem sets. They work together reviewing notes. I think there are huge gains from, from working together. In fact, that's the other one of my, uh, the things that I do that I think is somewhat rare is encourage students to work together, but it makes for a lousy measure. It, but if you have students work together on an exam, you're not really getting individual measures of, of learning. Yeah. It's a problem. Mm-hmm. And so I explain it. Why do I, why do I do things? So, so there, there are years when I ban computers from the classroom. There are years when I say, go, go to town with the computers in the classroom hmm. and it's hard. And I explain the logic I use that I'm using that particular year. I, that's mm-hmm. something I really swing both ways on. And then finally, I explicitly teach study skills. Yeah. So I think that's like a multiplier 
in the sense that if you teach students how to study better in your class, then they're going to learn more in all their other classes and they're going to learn more just in life in general. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a really valuable part of teaching is teaching students how to learn, not just teaching them the material that you're teaching them. Can you give me an example? So most of your students are uh, undergraduates. I mean, you would hope that they've learned some study skills or? Sure. I mean, so, I mean, I teach at Cornell. My students have to have had the grades in high school needed to get into Cornell. Mm -hmm. I did not, by the way. Cornell was my first choice when I was um, applying to colleges, and I they, I didn't get accepted. <laughs> you like telling that story, I imagine. Jokes, jokes on them. <laughs> I, I do. I do. Um, but in some ways, like I didn't have the study skills. Uh huh. Sure. So a concrete example. So I have a like a, a mini lecture I teach about how to prepare. How to? I have one where I say how to kind of succeed in this class. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I feel like there are just like three things that they need to do. So one, after class, they should review the material. So they should, I, I post all the slides I use and I, the way I teach is I have slides with lots of blank space and I write all over them. So I derive things slowly with by hand, but I also have pictures and bullets and things. Say so review those slides, read the book that's kind of assigned along with the chapter. I don't teach everything that's in the book. The book's great. It fleshes out the, what like, You'll learn more from reading the book. Identify the things you don't understand. Yeah. Okay. Circle those. Mark them up. Don't underline the most important, what you think is the most important parts. That's not useful. What's useful is identifying the pieces you don't understand. Oh, very interesting. Sort of counterintuitive. And resolve those. Yeah. So don't just like walk away. And then I say like, okay, how are you going to resolve those? There's a variety of ways. You can ask questions in class. So the next time say, Hey, you did this thing last time. I didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. You can go to office hours. Office hours are so underused. I know. I feel like the students that go to office hours, they just get so much out of it. Mm -hmm. And that's my office hours. That's my teaching assistants office hours. Take advantage of like department tutoring services. Talk to your friends in class. And then finally, there's a a course discussion board. So post questions on the course discussion board. Mm -hmm. I had one student. Um, I'd love to tell my students about this. She started the semester not super strong, mm-hmm. but then what she did is after every class, she'd review her slide, review the notes, and she would screenshot the parts that she didn't understand, yeah. and she would post those screenshots and say, "What's going on here?" Mm-hmm. on the discussion board. And so after almost every single class that semester, I would be answering questions that she had on the discussion board. And she ended up doing really well in the class. Mm-hmm. Wow, I've I've learned something. That, that's so great. I'm I'm, I'm getting uh, tingles because yeah, you've you've really nailed some really important things about learning. And you know, one of the things that crosses my mind, it's kind of a big picture thing, is you know you have to be careful when you're in a class not to focus on showing off, like kind of convincing yeah. yourself how much I know. But instead, having yeah. the humility to acknowledge, you know what, this part of the poem or, you know, this section of grammar or this part of economic theory, I actually don't get. And I'm not going to try and avoid talking about that because that's embarrassing and I don't understand it. But yeah, that's where you need to hone in. 
<laughs> well, it's the thing is when you make yourself vulnerable, it makes it okay for them to be vulnerable. Yeah. So the, the problem that I that I do run into at Cornell is students don't like making mistakes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody likes making mistakes, but these are students that have not made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And so when I ask them questions in class and they get the wrong answer, they find it like embarrassing and painful. Sure. But it's way more valuable if I can ask questions in class that are hard. Mm-hmm. If I ask easy questions and they know the answer, like we're wasting our time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I have this slide at the very beginning of the semester I put up. And and no matter what class I teach, and it says struggle is expected. And then every time I ask a question, a student gives me a wrong answer. I I try to be like over the top, like encouraging. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm so glad you said that because I bet you you are far from the only person that thought that in this room. Right. And that's wrong in this interesting way, mm-hmm. but here's where you kind of went wrong. Here's where you kind of applied the logic wrong. Yeah, that's so great. Okay, so back to learning about teaching. You talk about teaching as a scholar, and what, what yeah. do you mean by that? You can think of teaching as a scholar informally and formally. There's a range there. So informally, teaching as a scholar is simply trying new things in your class and paying attention to whether they work or not. Mm-hmm. And that can be, oh, that felt really good. My students, they were energized and they asked me questions that showed that they understood the material better. We went in these new ways and it was great. I'm going to do that again. Or I tried this thing and it didn't work at all. I'm not going to do that again. So that's at a minimum, you want to be doing that. Okay, next, teaching as a scholar. I mean, when was the last time you read an academic paper that didn't have any citations in it? Like we're building on what other people have learned. And so there's lots of research on teaching and lots to read. And there's, you don't have to go and read like the psychology experiment literature. There's actually some great kind of translational resources out there. So I really like a, a website called The Teaching Professor. Okay. For a while there, I subscribed to their newsletter and it's really good uh, that where they'll take a bunch of research studies and summarize them and say, these are the, the, the kind of the, the lessons learned. These are like the key facts that you need to know that are going to affect your teaching. And then finally, and I think this is probably a minority of faculty that are at places where they have the freedom to do this or will get rewarded for it, but there's actually doing research in your own classroom. And mm-hmm. so I do this a lot. Uh, where I'll randomly vary something, okay? So I'll want to know what's the effect, uh, what is the actual effect on learning of attending office hours? Okay. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I'll say, okay, half the, I'll randomly assign half my students to, you have to come to office hours at the beginning of the term. (laughs) And then half of them have to come like after the first exam. And then I'll see if the, the, the half that came to the office hours at the beginning, do they do better on the exam than the half that didn't? And you can write these things up and you can publish them. And depending on the university or the college that you work at, uh, that helps. Like you can get tenure that way. I go to these conferences and I, I meet people at different schools where they get tenure based on the research that they do in their own classrooms, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And good for the students. It won't work at Cornell. I see. Nobody's getting yet. Well, very yet. few people are getting yeah, yet. Exactly. <laughs> in, in my department, it's not going to happen. And then I guess there's this 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 other piece that I can't believe I didn't say earlier. 
I mean, there's Twitter and there's blogs and there's podcasts. There's great stuff out there. When I, my own teaching podcast, I started because I love podcasts and I wanted to hear people talking about teaching mm-hmm. when I was folding laundry or going grocery shopping mm-hmm. and there wasn't anything out there. Wow. Now, actually, there are some really good uh, teaching podcasts out there. In addition, Teaching in Higher Ed is a great podcast. Tea for Teaching is a great podcast. Nice. And so there's tons to learn there. And so just not thinking I'm just going to do what I've always done or a class is just a stack of slides and I'll have to write new exams every year, but otherwise I'm not going to, I'm going to just leave it alone. Mm -hmm. That's not teaching like a scholar. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Sort of going through the motions or doing what you've done before. So it occurs to me, I wonder if this happens. You tell me, it would seem to me that your students suddenly like perk up like, oh, he's he's trying to figure out how I'm learning. And so I wonder if that engages them in the process of learning. And so as a result, they're, you know, they're kind of more interested in in providing feedback to you. Does does that happen? I think it sends a strong message. When I tell them like what I do mm-hmm. and the kind of experiments I run, it sends a strong message that I really care. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. I'm like, and they feel like they're like, ooh, this is cutting edge. I'm getting a I'm getting value for my money. Yes. <laughs> right. They uh-huh. really like that. Although every once in a while I'll have a student who will just like look me straight in the eye and say, you don't really see us as students. You see us as research subjects. Oh, we're just guinea pigs. <laughs> we're just guinea pigs. And to which my answer is always the same. It's like, why can't I, why can't it be both? Yeah, right. Uh-huh, I absolutely exactly. view you as, as as research subjects and I want to learn from you. But I also think of you as, as people and I want to help you learn. Sure. And so like the incentives are really aligned here. Like my research is all about like, how can I kind of improve the teaching? And as a teacher, I want to improve the teaching. Yes, for your benefit. So it works well. I think especially now when education is so expensive, I don't know how students feel when they're sitting in the classroom, but I think putting myself forward, I would definitely often be thinking, am I getting my money's worth in this class? You know, because it's so expensive now. So I tell you this, the, um, the undergrads, for the most part, don't think like that because mm, I don't think they think of it as their own money. Oh, it's either their parents' money or it's financial aid. And like, they're there to like grow. I mean, I do think actually most students have a really healthy attitude during college that it's not just about the academics. It's about kind of growing and learning and trying new things yep. and kind of very broadly defined. Yeah, and they get it. Like some of their classes are not going to be great and some are going to be great and it's okay. Uh-huh. The hardest, and and I think at the PhD level, it's much more like apprenticeship. And so they're not expecting really high quality teaching in the classroom either. Oh. They're there to like work with the researchers and learn how to do the research by working with them and, and reading the books themselves and analyzing, like doing it. Where it's super challenging actually is the master's level. Because that's where like you have MBA students saying, and and like I have heard multiple colleagues say this that teach at business schools, where they have a student come in and they say, I have calculated that I am paying this much money for this year, <laughs> and I am in the classroom for this many hours. And so for each class, I expect to be getting $300 of value. 
In today's class, I did not feel like I got $300 of value. Oh my gosh, I'm cracking up here since I am obviously totally revealed here as an MBA student. But it's totally true. <laughs> like the MBAs and and frankly, oh. the um, the masters in public health and the masters in public policy students, they're all the same. Oh wow! <laughs> like they want the piece of paper and they want to like be getting their money's worth because in that in those at those professional schools, most of them are paying their own money. Mm-hmm. I did. So they have high expectations. Mm-hmm. And so actually, I think actually, I actually think teaching quality in business schools is some of the highest that you'll see in, in higher education. Oh, wow. That's um, amazing. Because the students demand it. That's amazing. That's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Well, to, uh, to turn to more emotional topics here. I just about mm. cried my eyes out when my piano teacher died. And it isn't because we had a special relationship outside of piano. Really, our relationship was all about piano. But it wasn't until she passed away that I realized how important she was. And then recently, uh, I came across a list of my high school teachers who had passed away. And I just had this, you know, just incredible sense of really outsized sense of grief. And yeah. I, and now I just wish that I hadn't seen that list. Like those teachers would just live on in eternity. Yeah. 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 But now you like, now have you, now you're saying that like, I'm, I'm going to go and Google and see if I can find the list for my school. Oh no. Don't, yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. Just think they're living on forever in those classrooms. So what, what do you think is happening there? Why do we develop such strong emotional attachments to teachers i mean it's okay or is that here we are i don't know Mm, mm -hmm. but i have ideas Uh so i think it's different with college and kind of k-12 i think it's different i think with college because in some sense your k-12 teachers certainly elementary school you're spending massive amounts of time with those teachers Uh uh-huh you're there all day like, I think like, my gosh, I could teach so much if I had my students from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. every single day. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but, but then I go and I look at the um, the Zoom meets for my fourth grader and I'm like, oh, maybe not. Maybe I couldn't actually, wouldn't actually learn that. Uh, it's be hard. Very hard. It's super hard. Super yeah. hard. But so I thought about this some at the, at the college level. And I think with college, that college is like a really big transition for people because they're going from like their whole lives, they've been at home and they've been kids. And then they go to college and it's this halfway house where they're actually like making money and living on their own. And they've got a job and like real responsibilities. It's this like, it's where they're making that kid to adulthood transition and their parents aren't there, but you're there. And a lot of faculty are kind of checked out or they're just like these like faces way down at the bottom of the the lecture hall but for those students where you get to know the where you get to know them you can have like a pretty big impact just because you happen to be there at the same time and you're this person who knows more than they are and they look up to them and Mm. and like you care about them and that that's pretty meaningful yeah. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about caring, I, I thought, hmm, that's part of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, elementary school or like K-12, I mean, I don't feel super close. 
emotionally with all my teachers from from high school and middle school and elementary school. <laughs> I'm not surprised. But some of them for sure, yes. Uh-huh. Um, and like, I think just different people, they just kind of mesh or like look up to other people. And as a kid, you're not around all that many adults for big chunks of time. Mm. I mean, you're not around the electrician or the dentist or even the doctor, but the teacher, you're around them a lot. Yeah, that's true. And so, and you look up to them, like if they know things that you don't know, that's like why they're, they're teaching you. And so I think that's part of it. I think that like kids go through these like cycles of like vulnerability and like really needing support. And if, if you happen to be there at the right time mm-hmm. and can offer that support, that can be really long lasting. Mm-hmm. That can make a pretty big, pretty big impact. And then I guess more generally, I mean, I think, I think teaching is an inherently generous. Yeah. I think it's, it's rare that like actual money changes hands between the, like it's, it's not actually very transactional. Right. I mean, big picture. Yeah. I end up getting my students come to college and they, they or their parents pay a lot of money and eventually that reaches me and that's my salary, but it's so indirect that you don't really see it. And same with like public K-12. I mean, your parents are paying for that, paying those teachers for the service they're providing. But as a student in the classroom, it just seems generous. Like that, that teacher is like giving of themselves. Gotcha. For seemingly no reward other than right. like you being happy and you learning. Uh-huh. That's pretty cool. That's powerful. All right. Let's talk about burnout. I had. Speaking of being generous and like flip. pouring your heart out for years <laughs> and years. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, there was one teacher in particular that we parents all knew was just awful. And he unfortunately yeah. taught science at the middle school level, you know, yeah. to loss. And I was, you know, just always really resentful about that guy because he took up space and and was a bad teacher. And, you know, at one point I went and looked at his website and it suddenly dawned on me that he had been passionate about science and that he had invested all this time into this website. And then I suddenly it just clicked like. Oh, he's burnt out. That's the problem. He's just yep. and yep. so yeah, it was very so talk a little bit of how if there are ways that we can guard against getting burnt out like that and taking up space. I mean, the number one thing is you gotta take care of yourself. Mm. Like you can't let it totally take over. Like I know plenty of people that are like, my students, they're always emailing me and I'm just sick of it. Uh-huh. I mean, like answer them quickly but don't just not answer Mm. like but you don't like I had one colleague who's like I don't think I should have to answer every student's email Uh and like and and I actually think that if you're in that situation what you can do is you can kind of send a message that you're not going to answer questions on particular topics because the the answers are in this course in this course material or you can have one of your teaching assistants be the um, the gatekeeper and they can answer all the mail sent to you can be go through them. There are things you can do to kind of prevent these situations where you feel like you're just, you're being asked to do more than you actually have the bandwidth to do. I'm not saying it's easy. Yeah, right. I, mean, I for sure find myself stretched too thin and overcommitted, but you have to take care of yourself and like make sure that you have time to do 
to do other things besides your work. That's exercise, watch some TV, hang out with friends, whatever it, it happens to be. Um, and then the, the other, and then you don't lose sight of the fact that your students are people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of a principle I just always come back to. Mm-hmm. Here's a, here's a pattern I see a lot. Students these days are awful. Oh, they don't know any math. They can't write. All they do is like their extracurricular activities. When I was a student, students worked hard and they, they, they just, they knew more coming in. I don't know what happens in high school, but like the students coming in, they're just weak. I'm like, they're still people. Okay. Mm-hmm. They, they're, they are what they are. Your job is not to like only teach the students that are super well-prepared. Your job is to take students where they're at mm-hmm. and try to push them forward. And so getting mad at the students or who they are, I think is just self-defeating. And then the other thing is like, try new things. Like don't, don't just do the same thing over and over. Don't make it a grind and like something, and don't be afraid to fail. Like you're going to, you're going to try things and they're not going to work and that's okay. Uh Do you feel as though during the time you've been teaching that you are seeing a decline in the preparation of the students as they come in from high school? I mean, I know, but I have not been teaching super long. So I've been teaching for like 12 years mm-hmm. and, and I changed institutions. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Yale students were pretty, pretty well prepared. Uh-huh. They're pretty strong. Mm-hmm. And at Cornell, the mean might be a little bit lower, but the variance is a lot higher. Interesting. Cornell had, well, Cornell has this, like the private Ivy League Arts and Sciences College. Mm-hmm. But it also has a big ag school associated with it. Oh, yeah, true. Mm-hmm. And it has a big industrial relations school and it has a hotel school. And so we get students of, and, and all of these students, they all take like classes in all the different colleges. And uh-huh. so in my classes, I'll have ag school students and I'll have um, hotelies and I'll have like students that are interested in labor relations. Mm-hmm. And they're different. And, mm-hmm. and to be honest, I think it's, I, I love teaching a wide range of students. Yeah, right. Um, I think they, they bring a, a like a variety of ideas uh, into the classroom that I never had when I was at Yale. Hmm. And like, they're plenty well-prepared. And like, I don't, I mean, I, I think some of them at first, they, they worry about making mistakes, but then I try to break that out of them. I break them up that habit. But I'm not one of the, I don't have like 30 years of teaching experience. I mean, the, the problem of course, is people always um, remember things as better than they were. Yeah, right. So what they're remembering is that when they were a student, they think they remember working super hard. And there were lots of students back then that that weren't. Yeah. And and there are a lot of opportunities now that that didn't exist then. I mean, I went to a college. I worked super hard because there were basically no extracurricular activities at my college. (laughs) I mean, besides getting drunk downtown, that was it. Those are your, or get your choices were getting drunk downtown or getting drunk at the fraternity party. Uh And so, yeah, people worked harder, but if there were more extracurricular activities, I probably would have availed myself of those. Yeah. It's also not quite fair. It seems to me when someone has become a professor to talk about how great they were as a student, because that's kind of the track that you, I mean, yeah, it kind of no surprise you were a really great student. I mean, this whole- That's how you got to be a professor. Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. So let's talk about group work a little bit. You've mentioned that. And and, yeah, yeah, I've gone all over the place personally with, with group work. 
and students working together and teaching each other. And there has been a lot of emphasis over the past few years or objection, I should say, to group work. I think um, in her book, Quiet, Susan Cain talks about how group work isn't really appropriate for a lot of students and we've crammed it down their throats. When do you think it works and when does it not work? So I do take this middle track. Mm. I think that a class where the students don't work together at all and they're just individuals, I think you're leaving a lot on the table there. Uh And so what happens there is the students that already have friendship networks have a huge advantage over the students that don't. Mm -hmm. And so what happens in like science classes and economics classes is a lot of times the guys know each other because there are more of them. And the the female students, they don't know as many people in the class because and there are fewer of them in the class. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't support social networking in the class, or not even social networking, but networking in the class, right, it really disadvantages people that are already disadvantaged in those oh, classes. Wow. At the same time, I think only group work is really dangerous. I mean, for me. The the two problems are one is you don't get nice individual level measures of how much students are learning yeah. because what you see is this product. And then it is possible for students to free ride. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is you can build in guardrails for that. And so in my classes, I assign when my class ha- my classes have group projects, peer evaluation is actually a pretty big part of it. Mm-hmm. And the group work Okay, so these are like the things that I, I worry about with groups, but I'm not, I still haven't answered your question, which are in, in when, when are groups appropriate? I think if you want students to kind of synthesize and connect the material that you're, synthesize the ideas you're teaching and then connect them to the real world, that's big and messy and complicated. And if students can work in a group together, they can make a lot more progress on something like that than if they're working individually. And so a really mixed group will bring lots of perspectives. And so students will learn and see the material from those different points of view and learn it a lot better. And I mean, another piece is they, they're able to kind of produce bigger things than any, than they ever would have been able to do individually. And I think that's really rewarding to kind of produce these big, big things. And it's way, and just from a practical perspective, it's a lot easier to grade 10 things than 50 things if you've got five student groups. Mm. And so I would never be able to, just the logistics of, I mean, my classes, they tend to have, the class where I I teach in the spring where we have these projects, it usually has about 120 students. Oh, wow. That's And I couldn't do a hundred, grade 120 projects. Right. And 120 projects, they wouldn't be that great. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Right. And so... I think for those kinds of things, it's really useful. Um, And then I guess, and those are the formal things, but informally, I really love when my, I assign my students to groups at the very beginning of the semester. I randomly assign them. I think it's really dangerous to isolate underrepresented groups Mm -hmm. in groups. Mm -hmm. And so like you always hear about like the class that had group, the physics class that had group work where there was the one female student in the group and the guys just ignored her. Yeah. And so I never isolate female students in groups. Every group I create has either none or at least two. Mm. And the same goes with underrepresented minority students. So they're all they're they're interacting with 
other students in the class, but they're also not alone. And I think that's really, really an important detail that I think um, makes a difference. But then, but those, okay, those, so those assigned groups, they work on these projects sometimes, but they also work together in class. And so in my, when I teach online, I put them in breakout rooms mm-hmm. in those groups a couple times every time we meet. And so they get to say, hey, how are you doing? How was your weekend? What's mm-hmm. going on? Mm-hmm. And especially online, it, it's really important that students have that connection to peers when they, they might not otherwise have such a connection. Right. Yeah. So that's one of the positive things about working on Zoom. I know you've been thinking uh, about what's happening with teaching during the pandemic. So what are you seeing as, as positive and negative? Yeah. So I can, there's the stuff I see kind of informally, like in my own life and talking to colleagues. Um, I mean, it's a pandemic. No one ever said pandemics were fun. It's mostly terrible. Mm-hmm. There are lots of things I used to do that I don't do anymore. Even just like, I like to go swim and like, it doesn't feel safe to go, go swimming in a pool right now for me mm-hmm. or go to a gym, go into the movies. Can't, can't really do that. Uh, we, my family, we just moved into a new house. Uh, it's a little bigger. And one of the huge reasons why we wanted a bigger house is so we could entertain. Oh, right. And now we, we can't have ha, people over ha, for dinner. Ha, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Someday, I hope, uh, but eventually. So, I mean, mostly it's terrible. And then I think that the effects of the pandemic work-wise are really variable. Mm-hmm. I mean, my own life, I have a lot less time to work. Oh, really? Um, because I have kids. Like oh, my, right. my, my kids are little and they run around mm-hmm. and they're, they're going to school online right now. And I mean, my wife does more than I do with them, but, but like, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's less time for work for both of us. But then I have colleagues that are like, yeah, I don't travel anymore. And I, mm-hmm. I can't really do a lot of the leisure that I was doing. And so I just work and ride my bike all the time. It's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, it really affected fair. people differently. That's one of the things that's really so different. remarkable. Yeah. And then there are like the, the colleagues that I have that are actually sick. Mm-hmm. Like I have a colleague, I have one colleague who was in the ICU for two weeks. Wow. Um, with COVID. Like it's, it's real. Like, it's not great. On the other hand, I think it's forced a lot of faculty that were really stuck and just teaching the same old stuff every year to really step back and think about their courses in a new way and kind of change them up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's good. I think some of those changes will stick. And now that they've like kind of like gotten thinking about teaching again, uh, mm-hmm. they'll be more likely to think about other making other changes. And so I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But from a research perspective, actually... I mentioned earlier that my postdocs and I have developed these standard assessments of, of learning and economics courses. And we have a, a, quite a few of them now, and they're not used just at Cornell. And it turns out, we realized this last spring, right when we were, we were all transitioning our classes to online, mm-hmm. that there were seven classes taught at either Cornell or outside Cornell that were taught in a previous semester in most cases by exactly the same instructor. And the students took this assessment at the end of the semester. And then those classes were being taught again in the spring. And in seven classes, they gave their students at the end of the, this like weird transitions in the middle to remote learning semester uh, where it was pretty stressful. And they gave those same assessments again. And so 
what we've been doing is actually com- looking at that data and seeing right. what happened to student learning. Yeah, sort of a, a lucky, almost controlled experiment. Interesting. Exa- exactly. And so what we have is um, these three findings. One is that there were for sure declines in learning, Yeah. but they were very different across the different classes. Oh. So four of the classes, there were pretty big declines. And three of the classes, there were no declines. Really? Wow. So it's very possible to teach a great class, teach like a class that's just as good as the in-person class. So that was number one. Okay. Number two, what we found is that the classes that, um, there were two factors that seems to explain what was different about these three where learning was maintained. Okay. And those were instructors had online teaching experience. Hmm, that made a big difference because huh. you're not like doing something totally new. And the other is intentional peer interaction as like a core part of the class. And so assigning students to small groups, having group work in the classroom, or having students work on some sort of group project outside the classroom oh. made a pretty big difference. And so there are particular things you can do that will make that kind of online experience and like the, frankly, the, the whole pandemic experience better, like imposing that or not imposing, but a, encouraging um, peer-to-peer interaction is one of those. Oh, very interesting. I, I, I think it's really, really lucky that you're able to access the same assessments because yes. at least for my kids' schools, I mean, school essentially vanished the moment that that yeah. in-person schooling, uh, so there weren't tests after, you know, the whole thing just collapsed. So yeah, it, it's interesting you had enough to still be able to do an assessment because it is great data. Oh, yeah. I mean, at the college level, people, we, we, we all just kind of tried, tried to keep going. I see. Like worst case, like you were, you were recording your lectures and the students were watching the lectures and you were giving pretty similar exams. Mm. Um, but we actually had the ex- so we're trying to teach the same amount of material, trying to teach the same things and translate from on, in-person to online. Mm-hmm. But the learning goals remain the same. Yeah, right. Okay, the third finding is actually, I think, maybe the most important. We went into this project really worried about student groups that we thought might have less support for learning at home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we were worried about underrepresented minority students. We were worried about first-generation college students. Mm-hmm. And in economics, we always we, we always worry some about the female students mm-hmm. because they're just, there are twice as many male students as female students uh, getting, getting economics degrees right now in the U.S., which is just objectionable and awful, and it shouldn't be that way, but it is. Mm-hmm. And so what we expected to see was that for these three groups, we would see bigger declines in learning across all the classes on average than for the, the non-minority students and the male students and the students that had college-educated parents. Uh-huh. And what we found is that we get pretty precise zero estimates. So it looks like that didn't happen. Mm. So either the support that they're getting at home doesn't isn't matter very much, or they were seemed like they were getting enough, or maybe the students we thought would get lots of support weren't. Right. But it did not, we did not see this like big inequality in the negative effects that we thought we were going to see. And so we were pretty happy about that. Yeah. Interesting. 
So that was our surprise good news. Yeah, right. Yeah. Things sometimes things you anticipate turn out not to be the problems that you thought that they were. Exactly. Exactly. Well, this has just been fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the listeners? Like, do you want to refer them to your website or places they could follow your work or other recommendations you have? Well, I I also believe that teaching in public is important and kind of sharing what you learn and uh, in the classroom, whether it's on a blog or in a research paper or a podcast is just important because I think teaching can be a really isolated profession, hmm. at least in terms of communication with your peers about teaching. As it's not isolated at all. You've got tons of students right there. So there's plenty no, of social interaction. Right, no. But it is pretty isolating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so basically, ever since I started teaching, I've written on a blog about my experiences in the classroom. And you can reach that at teachabetter.co. Uh, it's as I kind of shift toward more kind of formal writing and uh, like trying to publish this stuff in journals, I've written less on the blog, but I still write, uh, I still try to write regularly there. I tweet about education and economics occasionally, and that's teachbetterco on Twitter. And yeah, and anyone that wants to chat either on Twitter or on email, I'm pretty easy to, to get a hold of. Probably the most popular thing I've ever done on the internet is actually my um, YouTube videos on statistical methods for economics. Oh, but they have a pretty narrow audience. Uh huh. Well, who knows? There might be a listener out there who's interested. But yeah, in that. if you're looking to to kind of brush up on economic statistics or econometrics, you can check out my YouTube channel. And again, you just search for um, there. Just search for Doug McKee on YouTube, and it'll pop right up. Yeah. Um, but it was great to talk to you too, Jeff. Yeah, it was really inspirational. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing in all those areas, uh, teaching, but also helping us be better teachers and and spreading that kind of knowledge. And thanks for coming on the show. And I mean, thank you for having me and just um, caring about this sort of thing. I mean, I think you're doing great work on this podcast. And uh, I look forward to to hearing what the next few guests have to say about um, teaching in schools, too. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.